Well, today we're going to continue a series that we started a couple times ago, and the series I've intelligently labeled it Liar, Liar, Pants on Fire, because that's about at the level that I operate at. Um, but we're looking at lying, and lying not so much that we shouldn't lie, which is absolutely true. Hopefully you, you know that, but as far as the lies we hear in the world, and we are bombarded by lies all the time. You want me to... Let me see if I can get the uh, screen shown here, too. I might need to re... Should I try shutting down and restarting? Sometimes that does the trick. Yeah, let's try here. See if that does the trick here. I mean, if I had, you know, go to the work of getting a picture that actually shows pants on fire, <laughs> you might as well get the benefit from it. <laughs> so we'll see what we can do to, uh, to get that working. Should I try that again? Oh, 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 it's working. Sorry. I unplugged just to try it again. There we go. <laughs> wow. <laughs> oh, we didn't have that going. It doesn't get better than this. This is, a, this is the pinnacle of the sermon today, is seeing those pants on fire. No. But uh, with that introduction, um, yes, lies that we hear in the world, and we hear lies uh, coming from Satan, the father of lies. We looked at that. The lies come from the world around us. We hear it constantly, whether it's from the university, whether it's from the media, uh, whether it's from unbelievers you know. And often the lies that we hear are lies that we tell ourselves, lies that maybe we've picked up in the world and then we repeat to ourselves. And before we jump into a particular lie that I think we need to examine, I want to remind us of another passage that warns us against false teaching and warns us as believers to be on guard against these things. Uh, last time we looked at Colossians 2.8, closing arguments of what is falsely called knowledge which some have professed, and thus gone astray from the faith. And in this final, this conclusion that Paul gives to this letter, he gives a two-part command, a two-part warning. And the first part is guard what's been entrusted to you. To keep something safe, protect the deposit, protect this precious thing that's been entrusted. And what is he referring to? Well, he's referring to the truth of the gospel. All the truth that he has given to Timothy, that he has learned, he is to guard and protect, continue to proclaim it and make sure that error does not creep in. And the second part of the command is avoiding worldly and empty chatter and the opposing arguments of what is falsely called knowledge. And this phrase here, similar to a phrase we looked at the other week, there's one article and then all of these um, nouns and descriptions are for that one article. So we're to see them together. This is one unit here. It's not there's some that's empty chatter and some that is what's falsely called knowledge. He's talking about all these things, all of this so-called knowledge, all of this empty chatter. We need to avoid this. We need to stay away because it's so easy as believers to get caught up in that. He's writing to Timothy. Timothy is obviously not an unbeliever, but he's not a newbie either. He's a mature believer and still he must be careful. He must avoid this falsely called knowledge. 
that is only from the world, not from the Lord. And finally, he tells them why. <clears throat> why does he need to avoid this? Well, he needs to avoid it because some <clears throat> have professed, some who have professed have thus gone astray from the faith. There are some who have walked from Christ because they get caught up in this false knowledge of the world. And it doesn't happen all at once. The truth is it happens subtly. There's little lies creep in. And things that sound right, we let infiltrate our thinking. And that leads us a little farther away from the truth, a little farther away from the Lord. And eventually, our hearts get so turned, our minds get upside down on what is true and false, we could walk away from the precious truth of Christ. And so we need to be on guard against that. We need to avoid these lies that are around us. Well, today... The lie we're going to look at is a fairly innocuous sounding lie, and I'm sure that you've heard it before, and the lie is this, follow your heart. heart you guys have heard that before, right? Sure, follow your heart, follow your heart. And, you know, you might hear different ways this is said, it might be do what seems right to you, may be the meaning there, it could be do what makes you happy. Or perhaps do what feels like the right thing to do. Now, there may be a very charitable way of seeing this phrase is follow your conscience. Now, we're not going to talk a lot about the conscience today. Um, the, MacArthur did a fantastic book called Vanishing Conscience that goes into detail. But we do follow our conscience. And at times, perhaps people might mean that when they say follow your heart. But more frequently than not, it's do what you feel is right. Do what feels to be the right thing. And, of course, this phrase, follow your heart, we hear it as uh, many movies have this message. And, of course, which movies have this message constantly? Well, the Disney movies, of course. You know, that's the safest message they feel to, to put in all their movies. Aladdin, don't be something that you're not. Be yourself, Aladdin. Uh, Beauty and the Beast, beauty is found within. Uh, Mulan, be yourself, choose your own path. Ratatouille, don't let where, you're, where you come from define who you are. <laughs> Lion King, don't forget who you are is the main theme, but it's all around this follow your heart theme. Now, one of the more popular Disney movies in recent years, and I'll admit it, okay, a personal favorite of mine, is Frozen. <laughs> okay, I said it, there it is. I like the movie Frozen. Let it go. Exactly. Thank you, Eric. Let it go. Now, it's a beautiful song. But the message of that song is horrible. Let it go. You know, part of the line is um, that conceal don't feel was the, was the message that she had been getting. But no, stop doing that. Now, express yourself. Express all your feelings. Let it go. I don't care anymore. I'm going to do whatever I want. Now, some would say that's the theme of the movie, but I would disagree. It's sacrificial love, right? Doing for someone where, you know, at the end, Anna comes in, and uh, Elsa comes in, rescues Anna from being frozen. That, I think, is the main theme of the movie, but Let It Go, in fact, clashes with that main theme of the movie. Um, but I digress a bit. Um, <laughs> but, 
that song, and many, many Disney films have this same theme of follow your heart. Do what feels right. Do what you think is best. And sometimes we hear dreams or express yourself or be the authentic you. Be authentic or just you be you. Just do what you feel like um, you are. Be, be yourself. Don't hide it anymore. Express yourself. And we may think at times, well, that's, that's not harmful. I mean, how bad is that? Um, why should we be so worried? Well, there's a, a foundation to that and thinking that goes behind that that is very harmful. And the philosophical underpinnings of that have been fleshed out in many ways in our world today that is very dangerous. And in fact, I believe and hopefully show you today how that's crept into our thinking as well. Now, a book that I had mentioned before that I've appreciated uh, called Rise and Triumph of the Modern Self by Carl Truman, he talks about this quite a bit, about something called the psychological man. Now, Truman takes quite a while to develop the historical roots of this with Rousseau and some of the things that he said, and it's fascinating, but we're not going to look at it today. But he talks about now we have what's called the philosophical man, or I'm sorry, Psychological man. Psychological man. The psychological man is what we see today around us. And what is the psychological man? Well, the psychological man, the current mindset is that each person views himself in primarily psychological terms. How do I feel? And this is how someone in the world views themselves. How do I feel about myself? And each person's well-being is directly tied to how they feel about themselves. And I think if you examine the culture today, you, you'll notice that, that that is very much the mindset. It's not the political, how do I relate to government? It's not the religious man, how do I relate to the church and what the church is saying? But it's the psychological man, how do I relate to how I feel and who I am? So in previous times, again, people saw themselves perhaps in relation to the transcendent. What is my relationship with God? How do I improve my relationship to God? And what does God think of me? And what are God's purposes for me? Or men have seen themselves in relation to the culture. How do I fit into society? How does society view me? But now that has changed more to be, how do I feel about me? How do I view myself? And Truman says this, in the world of the psychological man, however, the commitment is first and foremost to the self and, was, and is inwardly. And so the questions the psychological man asks himself today, most people in the world around us is, how do I feel about me? How do I feel about myself and who I am? And am I authentic? Truman goes on to say this. That which hinders my outward expression, this is the psychological man talking, which hinders my outward expression of my inner feelings, that which challenges or attempts to falsify my psychological beliefs about myself, and thus to disturb my sense of inner well-being, is by definition harmful and to be rejected. Anything you say against someone's psychology, how they feel about themselves, well, that's seen as hate language if you say something negative about it. And I think the most obvious outworking of this 
that we can see around us is transgenderism. And it is seen as an attack on a person if you say that the transgenderism is a sin, conceptually, they see it as a personal attack. Now, why is that? It's because the person has seen themselves and their authentic self, how they feel about themselves, as the most important thing about them. So you're not only attacking what they believe or even an action, even a behavior, but you're attacking their core of who they are because they see themselves, most importantly, how they feel about themselves. And outside influences, maybe outside facts such as biology, are set aside for how does that person feel about himself. And if that person feels, inside of me I feel I'm a certain gender, it doesn't matter what the outside is. Well, that is an outworking of the psychological man. That isn't of this belief that your own feelings are what's most important to you. And so therefore, what we see then is tolerance is not the buzzword that it used to be. Ten years ago, it was tolerate, tolerate. Well, now, uh, we don't hear that as much, at least I don't, but the word now is celebrate. Celebrate this. Because it's not just you tolerate that behavior, but you have to celebrate who that person feels that they are, what they think about themselves. And I hope that a little bit helps to understand what the world around us and how they're thinking, but my main concern for you today is how this creeps into the church. How these ideas, not to the point of transgenderism, but how these ideas of how my feelings are the most important thing about me can creep into our thinking as Christians and how we're on guard against that. Now, hopefully this is helpful as you talk to unbelievers too and you understand, okay, this is why they're getting so upset because they see themselves as all wrapped up in how they feel and you need to help orient them as what is not important how you feel, the important thing is how does God feel? What does God think? What is God saying about this? Not how do you feel about yourself. But for believers, how do we get influenced in this? I'm going to skip that quote. Um, how can we be influenced in our thinking in this way? Well, I think it comes in even subtle ways. I'm going to suggest one that um, maybe hits a little close to home. Maybe you have said this or heard this, but a statement, choose a job you love and you will never have to work a day in your life. Now, it doesn't, that's not a bad statement in some ways. Should you like to do or is it nice to enjoy your work? Well, sure. Sure, it's great to enjoy what you do. But is that the highest priority in your job, in your workplace? Is how you feel about it in your own personal satisfaction the most important thing? Is the purpose of work, why God gave us work, is that we feel fulfilled in that we feel good about ourselves. So we need to ask, what underlies this statement? Is the purpose of work my own personal enjoyment? Am I putting my feelings as first priority? Am I the priority in my job, or is it to honor God in my work? And I work to honor Him. And I work to provide for my family, provide for needs, and to provide for others' needs outside my family. Or is it, this is about me? Now, the problem comes when it's, well, I'm not going to even take a job if it's not fulfilling to me. 
or I'm not going to work hard, or I'm going to quit a job if it doesn't satisfy me in some ways. Of course, it's great if you do your work for the Lord, and you're able to provide, and you enjoy it. Wonderful, but what is the priority of those things? And too often, our priority, even in this one specific area, is on, is it self-fulfilling? So that's just a simple example, and I'm not going to belabor that. If you want to hear more on the Christian and work, there was a Men of the Word series last year, Proverbs and Work, and I would encourage you to uh, listen to those uh, sermons that are on podcasts. You can see those. But I want to look more generally at how does the Christian relate to emotions? What is, what is the, the role of feelings in the lie that we're told, follow your heart, can set us on the wrong track. And we can respond wrongly when we hear that lie. One of the problems can be we put an overemphasis on emotions. And that would be taking in the lie directly. Follow your heart, that your, your emotions are the most important thing. And if we do that, if we have an overemphasis on emotions... We can go wrong in a couple areas. We can have the thinking that if I don't feel like obeying God, well, I shouldn't do so. It would be hypocritical, or the word today, inauthentic. So, you know, I, I don't feel like reading my Bible. I don't feel like praying. So that wouldn't be authentic if I did so. So I'm not going to read my Bible. I'm not going to pray. I'm not going to serve others in the church. So this in our emotions and feel like obedience depends upon our emotions. That's an overemphasis on emotions. Also, we can have an overemphasis on emotions when we think that if we do have a positive emotion, that I feel a peace about this, it must be from God. And I'm sure you've heard the phrase, oh, I have a peace about this. And there's a charitable way to say that and a meaning to that, but I think often it can be the meaning of, well, it just feels like the right thing to do. We assign God is the one who gave me this feeling, perhaps in stating it, but we can have, we can think that our feelings are what is the thing to be guiding us. If we say we have a peace about something, and if you, on the flip side, if you don't feel good about a decision, I... Uh, I don't really feel good about sharing the gospel. Well, I don't have a peace about it, so I'm not going to share the gospel with my neighbor. Well, here's an overemphasis on emotions. Here we're thinking, oh, I have to feel good about something to obey. So we need to certainly avoid that error. Um, I was, had a great conversation this morning, uh, and we were talking about how some churches put an emphasis on emotions. This, is, this would be a third one. They put an emphasis on emotions where it's stirring people's emotions to get them to obey. And some churches do that. That is the focus, is emotional preaching to move obedience, where that, as we'll talk about later, is not the path to God-honoring obedience, is just stirring the emotions. But it's through truth, affecting the mind, moves the emotions, which wants to joyfully obey God. So we'll look at that in a minute. But that can be an overemphasis. It's just focusing on emotions. But Another danger is an underemphasis in emotions. Another problem is looking at emotions as unimportant to God, as unimportant in the Christian life, and that only our belief and our behavior are what matter to God, and God doesn't care about our emotions. 
And that would also be a wrong view of Christians and the emotions. And this is a reaction maybe against the overemphasis that we see in the world or even see in the church then we'll react too strongly and have an underemphasis, and it can come out in statements such as this. I don't feel love for my spouse, and there's nothing I could do about that. I have to just keep living. It's a trial God's given me to endure. That, hey, I need to obey whether I feel love or not, or I don't feel like being with this person at work, and as long as I don't say anything unkind, it's okay, because... I can't help the way I feel. And that would be a wrong statement as well. That would be a misunderstanding of emotions in the Christian life. So we must avoid either an overemphasis on emotions or an underemphasis. So this is the lie. This is, we always start here with the lie, and then we're going to look at the truth. Okay, now that's the lie. What is the truth? What do we need to fill our minds with? Well, the first thing I want to remind you of is first, you cannot trust your feelings. Don't trust your feelings. And this is avoiding the overemphasis on emotions. As we saw, the current age is one of the psychological men who bases what he believes to be true on how he feels. And that if I feel in my heart I'm one gender, well, that's got to be true because I'm basing truth on how I feel or the idea that I feel attracted to someone of the same gender, so how can I deny my feelings? And you cannot trust your feelings. You can deny your feelings, and you should if they're against what God says. So although, although the world will want to elevate our hearts or our feelings to a very high place, God has something very different to say about our hearts, doesn't he? He doesn't say, trust your heart, follow your heart. God says, your heart is wicked, is what he tells us. Jeremiah 17, 9 and 10. The heart is more deceitful than all else and is desperately sick. Who can understand it? I, the Lord, search the heart. I test the mind, even to give to each man according to his ways, according to the results of his deeds. And we can see here that God says, the heart is deceitful, and is sick. And the word for heart that we see a couple times here, both in verse 9, and it doesn't only refer to emotions. So we need to be careful that we don't jump into a passage and assign a meaning to this Hebrew word here. In Hebrew, the word for heart here refers to all of us. It includes emotions, but it also includes your thoughts and your thinking and your reasoning are all included in that. And in fact, what it's saying is all of that is deceitful. All of that is sick, and God tests all of your heart. And interestingly, in verse 10, you can see there he talks about the mind as well, or at least the mind is the translation in our New American Standard Bible, but literally the word is kidneys. Interestingly, and you think, wow, kidneys, that God tests the kidneys, well, what is that all about? Well, in Hebrew thought, kidneys were the seat of emotion. Kidneys is where your emotions came from. And that is just the, the way that they would think of it. And we can see the parallel way that heart and mind are used, or in fact, heart and kidneys are used here, that it's including our emotions when it talks about our heart in this passage. So very much the thrust of this passage is saying our hearts, all of us, including your emotions, 
is deceitful and cannot be trusted. You cannot trust yourself. Don't trust your own feelings. You say, I bet I really feel this way. Well, that may be, but that may be a sinful feeling. That may be a sinful thought and dishonoring to God. Just because something feels like the right thing to do does not mean it is the right thing to do. And just because something feels uncomfortable doesn't mean that God doesn't want you to do it. We can't trust it. And what this verse and many passages point to is the depravity of man. We are, we are depraved, total depravity. And one of parts of total depravity, we may think when we think of depravity, we think of our guilt before God, our sinful guilt. And that's absolutely true. But depravity speaks about more than this. It also speaks of the corruption, the corruption of who we are. Certainly our, our bodies are corrupted and we all will die. But our minds are, have been corrupted as well by the fall. Our thinking has been corrupted by the fall. Every aspect of us, including our reasoning and desires and emotions, have all been corrupted. And they call this the noetic effect of sin. Now, this isn't Noah, noetic, but it's speaking of the mind. Speaking of the mind and how our minds have been corrupted by the fall and our reasoning is not always faultless. So we need to understand it's not as if if, if we think a certain way or feel a certain way, therefore it must be true. Our, our thinking is imperfect. And one verse that points to this is in Titus 1.15, which says, To the pure all things are pure, but to those who are defiled and unbelieving nothing is pure, but both their mind and their conscience are defiled. For unbelievers, the mind and conscience are defiled. There's problems going on in the very thinking of unbelievers, and they cannot know what is right, cannot trust their minds. So a lot of times people will think, well, it seems right to me. I should do what seems right to me. Well, if we look at Scripture and people who did what seemed right to them, well, that wasn't always the right choice, was it? Uh, even Pastor MacArthur mentioned this verse this morning at the end of Judges, Judges 21-25, it says, in those days there was no king in Israel, and everyone did what was right in his And appropriately, that is considered the theme of Judges. And we see that verse repeated elsewhere in, in chapter 17, that people doing right in their own eyes is what drove the nation again and again into sin and falling, facing God's judgment, and then a, a judge having to be raised up. But the problem was people were doing things right in their own eyes. But consider that. They weren't doing what they thought was wrong, but what they thought was right. They thought, this is the right thing to do. This is what I should do. And this is echoed in Proverbs 14, 12. There's a way that seems right to a man, but its end is the way of death. And because you feel or think a certain way, even think that this is the right thing to do, doesn't mean that it necessarily is. Just feeling like you are a woman trapped in a man's body does not mean, well, that must be the truth. You cannot trust your own thinking or your own feeling. Our feelings or emotions are poor guides in determining what is right and wrong. But again, as I mentioned, as believers, we can fall into the same kind of thinking when we say things like, I have a peace about this. It's a good decision because I have a peace about this. And the meaning is the decision feels right. It feels like the right thing to do. I have a peace. Now, 
not everyone who uses that phrase is necessarily being wrong. It may be communicating, after examination of God's word and counsel from godly people, I made a decision that honors God, and I believe that pleases him, and I am at peace with whatever God causes to happen from that decision. Well, that's fantastic. <laughs> that's exactly how we should think. And perhaps maybe that's a little more how we should say it. Instead of saying, well, I have a peace about it, I'm obeying God and I'm trusting him in this situation. Because we don't want to put too high of a reliance on how we feel about things. Because we may have a peace about something when it is absolutely against God's word. You say, I have a peace about leaving my wife. I have a peace about hurting my child. Well, I don't care if you have a peace about those things. And certainly God doesn't care if you have a peace. If this is a feeling that's based on your corrupt nature, what does God's word say about this? Not do I have a peace about this. So we need to be careful in that. So first we see the truth is that we can't trust our feelings, that our hearts are wicked and sinful. Another truth we need to remember, and this is to avoid underemphasis of emotions, is that your emotions are a gift from God and should be brought into submission to Christ. And so we need to honor him with our emotions as well. We may hear statements like, I know I don't, I know I don't feel like obeying God, but that is not important. I need to do what is right and ignore how I feel. Or perhaps God demands obedience in my behavior. He doesn't command how I feel about this. Now, what I want to say is that's, that's a wrong reaction. That's the, the pendulum swing to the other side that we need to avoid as well. God does care about your emotions. God does care how you feel about things. God demands obedience from every part of you. Every bit of who you are must be in submission to Christ. You can't say, well, my belief is in submission, my behavior, but nothing can be done about my feelings. No, God demands submission there as well. Proverbs 3, 5, a verse we know and love. Trust the Lord with all your heart and do not lean on your own understanding. And remember, heart doesn't just refer to emotions. It refers to everything, but it includes the heart for sure. And we are to trust the Lord with all of our heart and we are reminded the great command, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. And in stacking these things up, he's, he's not making a distinction between here are the segments of your thoughts and elsewhere we see it strength put in the mix here. What he's saying, doing by stacking these up is saying all of you, every bit of you needs to love the Lord your God. There is not a part of you that gets a pass from loving the Lord. He is Lord not only of our actions, but he's Lord of our emotions as well. Coming to Christ as Lord and Savior means that every part of you was regenerated and every part of you sanctified. Just as in the fall, every part of you was corrupted. When Adam fell and we were born in sin, every bit of us was corrupted, including our thinking and reasoning and emotions. In regeneration, every part of us must be brought into conformity with Christ. Not just parts, but all of us must be in conformity to Christ. 
And there's a, a good book talking about feelings. It's called Feelings and Faith by Brian Borgman. And uh, been enjoying reading this. He says this, true faith, in other words, inevitably rises to godly desires and emotions. Regeneration always manifests itself in godly desires. If we are truly regenerated, we will, our emotions will change. What we love will be different. What we hate will be different. And when someone is saved, there'll be a change in emotions. Now, just as in all sanctification, that change, while dramatic at the point of conversion, it's not totally complete. We are sanctified when we are first come to salvation. But we continue in a progress, in progress, a process of sanctification throughout our lives. And that is certainly true of our thinking and our actions. It's true of our emotions as well. We do have a change of desires when God makes us a new creature in Christ. There should be. If there's no change in desires when you are saved, then you should question your salvation. But that doesn't mean that from now on I never desire sin again, and I always desire to honor. No, there's a process. There's a continuing to put to death sinful emotions and putting on God-honoring emotions as well as thinking and behavior as well. And we can see in Scripture many times, God commands obedience of our emotions. Think of these commands, and I'll just go through quickly a number of verses. In Micah 6, 8, He has told you, O man, what is good, and what does the Lord require of you, but to do justice, to love kindness, and to walk humbly with your God. It's not just doing justice, but it's loving kindness. 2 Corinthians 9, 7. Each of you must do as he is purposed in his heart, not grudgingly or under compulsion. These would be sinful emotions, for God loves a cheerful giver. We need to have the emotion of cheerfulness when we give. That's a command. Hebrews 13.5. Character is free from the love of money, being content with what you have. Being content is not so much an action as a heart attitude. It's your emotion and feeling of trust in God. And God commands us to be content. Luke 12, 5. But I will warn you with whom to fear. Fear the one who, after he has killed, has authority to cast into hell. Yes, I tell you, fear him. We need to fear. That is a command from God, to fear him. Colossians three fifteen. Let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts. Peace must be true in us. 1 Peter 2.2, 2, long for the pure milk of the word. Again, a command for a desire. God's commanding that we desire this, that we desire the word. And Ephesians 4.32, another tender-hearted. And again, tender-hearted is an emotion. And finally, rejoice in the Lord. Always, again, I say rejoice. Rejoice again, an emotion that we're commanded. Now, I give a number of these verses, hopefully to make crystal clear and to make sure that you understand your emotions aren't off limits to God. It's not, God, I obey you, I'll do what you say, I'll believe the right thing, but I can't help the way I feel. Well, God says you need to feel the right way, you need to have the right emotions. Now, Understanding this, that God demands obedience in our affections, not just our actions, 
there's two common objections that come up to this. And that you, maybe you're already thinking of these objections in your own mind. And what, what are these objections? First, how can God command my emotions and not control how I feel about something? Right? That may, may seem like a very reasonable, like, wait a minute, how can God command my emotions? How can he say I need to feel a certain way? Well, uh, there's a good quote again from this book, Feelings and Faith. By saying that we can't control our emotions, it says it's a wrong understanding because it effectively puts the emotions beyond the reach of sanctification and the biblical imperatives that would require change. If we say, I can't be changed, I can't control emotions, we're saying, okay, well, God, you put these commands in the Bible, but no can do, I can't obey these. Well, certainly there is a way then. And one of the ways to control our emotions, self-control, right? Remember that old virtue that we talk about every so often? Self-control. Second Peter 6 talks about growing in our faith, applying, it says, for this reason, applying all diligence in your faith, supply moral excellence. In your moral excellence, knowledge, and in your knowledge, self-control. And in your self-control, perseverance, and your perseverance, godliness. We are commanded to grow in self-control. And certainly we know one of the fruit of the Spirit is self-control. A truly saved person, someone who's walking by the Spirit, will demonstrate a life of self-control and therefore show that the Holy Spirit is in them. So to say, I can't control my feelings? Well, then you're saying, uh, by saying that, then the Holy Spirit does not have power in that area of my life. And that's not true. The Holy Spirit can do that, can make that change in you. Now, it's not going to be sudden, perhaps, or all at once. It'll take time, but you can't give a pass to sinful emotions. Another common objection is, if I don't feel like reading my Bible or praying or going to church, then doing so would make me a hypocrite or inauthentic. It's better not to do these things than to be a hypocrite. Well, this hits the fallacy of, look, two wrongs don't make a right. Um, we can't say, well, first wrong here, I'm not desiring to seek the Lord. I'm not desiring to seek Him. The second sin, the second wrong, is disobeying God's commands to actually do those actions. So failure to pursue obedience to God because you don't feel like doing it doesn't mean you should stop obeying it simply means you need to repent of not having that desire and then do the right thing, praying for God to give you the right emotions. So a failure in desiring to obey should not be compounded by a failure or a sin to obey. So don't make an excuse and say, well, I, I'm not going to obey because, well, I don't feel like it. Well, that is a wrong response as well. Well, that may bring to mind then, okay, so what do I do? Okay, so what do you do when you don't feel like obeying God? What do you expect me to do about this? Well, the wrong response is obey God and don't worry about how you feel about it. Again, that thinking puts emotions outside of God's call to sanctification. And a book by Mike Riccardi, a little book on sanctification, he says in the truest sense, you haven't obeyed till you've felt like it. Because God commands not only to behave righteously, but to be 
holy. So the right response then is confess your lack of desire as a sin. Pray for God to change your heart and move forward in obedience. Don't stay there and say, well, I don't feel like it. What do I do? Well, you know what? Ask God's forgiveness for that sin. And then move forward in faith, praying that God would give you the right emotions. Again, Mike Riccardi says, when you don't feel like obeying, that is, you don't have the holy frame of heart to do the duty with the joy which God commands you to do it, you are to go to the word of God, believing that the sanctifying glory of Christ is revealed there. And while confessing and repenting of you're not feeling like it, you are to let the joyful prospect of beholding God's glory compel you to discipline pursuit of Christ. So we are to move forward. Full obedience is right belief, right emotions, right actions. And we need to, in obedience to Christ, doing by faith what he's commanded us, if you don't have the right emotions, but don't give a pass to those wrong emotions, ask God's forgiveness and ask that he would give you more of a heart, more of a love for him in having joy in obeying him. So we, we've seen the lie that the world says to follow your heart, putting this great emphasis on your own feelings and emotions. And we must resist the lie of overemphasizing our emotions and also only doing what feels right. We must resist the lie of ignoring our emotions and putting them outside of our process of sanctification. Well, what is our response then? How do we move forward then in having the right emotions, and, and moving in a way that honors the Lord. Well, first, instead of following your heart, follow God's word. That is where the truth is. It's God's word that'll tell you what is right and wrong, not how you feel about something. Psalm 119 speaks to this. Uh, certainly, the whole chapter does. How blessed are those who observe his testimonies, who seek him with their heart. And Psalm 119:105, your word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. God's word can tell us what is right and the way we are to live. So instead of looking to emotions, though, to stir obedience, say, well, okay, I know what is right. And the goal then is to inform our minds with truth. Put truth in the mind. What is true about Christ? What is true about what Christ has done? What the Lord has done, that will affect our emotions. Don't Make it a process, all right, got to work on stirring my emotions up more. What can I do to help my emotions? That's not the goal. The goal is you that desire to honor the Lord and to obey him. So instead of following your heart, follow God's word. And secondly, seek godly counsel. Proverbs 12, 15 reminds us, A fool, the way of a fool is right in his own eyes, but a wise man is he who listens to counsel. Don't trust your own thoughts and feelings. Go first to God's word, and then go to godly people that you know, seek their counsel, seek their insight on what is right. Secondly, instead of disregarding sinful emotions and saying, I, I can't help it, confess them. 1 John 1, 9, if we confess our sin, he is faithful and righteous to forgive us our sin and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. When you don't feel like praying or reading the Bible, or you don't Feel like obeying God and turning away from ungodly entertainment when you have no appetite for spiritual things. 
when you don't feel like loving your spouse because it's just, I don't have that emotion, confess to the Lord that you have a self-centered heart. Confess that as sin to God. Say, Lord, I'm not desiring this. Forgive me for that. I'm not, my emotions are sideways here. Give me the right emotions. Pray, confess. Secondly, pray that God would give you those godly desires and a joy in obeying him. And then walk in obedience. Walk in obedience, trusting that God will transform your heart as you continue to pray that God would give you those right emotions. By doing that, we can trust the Lord. We sometimes need to walk by faith in, in obeying, even when our emotions aren't there. But certainly, the obedience that the Lord loves and the obedience is one that's done from a heart that loves God and desires to honor Him in that obedience. And then C, finally, instead of considering it impossible to change your emotions, pursue Christ. Instead of saying, well, my emotions can't change, well, this is the path. The path to change them, number one, pursue Christ. Think of the parable Jesus told of the treasure hidden in the field. The man found, hid it again, and from joy he goes and sells all that he has and buys that field. This man saw the treasure of Christ, is what the parable is speaking of, and was going to give everything to follow him. We should be like that, not just at salvation, not just at conversion. That should be us all the time. That's the joy that should mark our life. That we're sacrifice any sin, any ungodly entertainment, any selfish thought, or even we're willing to endure for Christ. 1 Peter 1.8 says, Though you have not seen him, you love him. And though you do not see him now, but believe in him, you greatly rejoice with joy inexpressible and full of glory. Is that you? Joy inexpressible and full of glory? If we understand better who Christ is, we will love him with our emotions more. And obedience will come naturally from those emotions because we see how wonderful Christ is. So we need to pursue Christ. You've heard the phrase, you know, to know him is to love him or to know, to know a person is to love them. That's never more true than of Christ. The more you know Christ, the more you will love him. He will stir your emotions. He will give you that heart to obey. So first, pursue Christ. Secondly, fill your mind with truth. Colossians 3, 15 and 16 speaks of letting the word of Christ richly dwell within you. When you let God's word fill your mind, that truth will affect your emotions. Again, the solution is not, well, stir up your emotions with some really good music, Christian music that uh, really gets you going. Uh, do dim the lights, put on the candles, and uh, you know, get that emotion going. No, fill your mind with truth. And when you fill your mind with truth instead of the lies from the world, you'll be reminded, you know what? The things of Christ are precious. It's, I do want to obey. I do desire to honor him in, in everything. So increase your intake of the scripture, increase your intake of solid Christian books that speak of the truth of Christ, that speak of honoring him, and pray for God's work on your emotions. Paul, in his letters, often prays for the people he's writing to, and one of the things he often prays for 
is that they would better understand the gospel, that they would better understand Christ. Why does he pray that for them? Because if they love Christ more, they'll want to serve and obey him. In Ephesians 1.18, I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened, that you will know what is the hope of his calling, what are the riches of the glory of his inheritance in the saints. This is a great prayer that he prays for people, that God would stir their emotions. And you can pray that for others, and you should. You know what? Pray that for yourself. God, stir my heart. Let me see more of Christ. Let me appreciate him more so that I want to honor him in everything that I do. And when not wanting to seek the Lord, not wanting to evangelize or not wanting to serve your spouse, after you've confessed that sin, pray that God would give you a greater love for him and then move forward in obedience to him as well. Okay? All right, let me pray for us. Father, we thank you. You are such a great God. And Lord, we hear these lies from the world uh, that we just need to trust our feelings, trust uh, what we think inside, and that's who we are. But Lord, we know it's true that, God, we need to listen to what you say who we are and what truth you have communicated to us. Lord, and we want to hear from you, well done, good and faithful servant. That is our goal in all things. And Lord, you do review the fact, and in reality, every one of us don't always want to obey you. It's shameful, Lord, that that is true. Lord, if we knew you better, if we understood Christ more, we wouldn't have to talk about things like that because we would want to. We would feel like obeying you. God, fill our minds with the knowledge of Christ. Cause us to know him better, to know more of who he is and what he has done. Appreciate him, love him, treasure him above all else so that we might live for you in love for you, God. Lord, be on in our week this week. Pray that you would bless all those coming to the Shepherds Conference. Um, Lord, that their encouragement, Lord, in the teaching from your word, we pray in the name of Christ. Amen.